The study of history regularly undergoes periods of self-examination. The current phase I teach places a greater emphasis on understanding the experiences of regular people during each era. This shift from focusing solely on kings and queens to the everyday struggles of men and women has been refreshing. Students grow tired and complain about rote memorization of historical names and dates related to events that seem distant in both time and societal standing. However, one period where I have no concerns that the common folk might be overshadowed is the Third Crusade. While hundreds of thousands of nameless victims fought and perished, it is impossible to divert attention from Richard the Lionheart and his equally, if not more, chivalric foe, Salah al-Din. These two figures loom larger than life on the battlefield and in the strategic sessions during the Third Crusade. Even God, the supposed reason for this holy war, takes a backstage role to the warrior kings leading their armies in the name of that god. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the English King Richard the Lionheart. Episode number three, The Third Crusade. To delve deeper into the conflict between Richard and Salah al-Din, it's essential to address other key figures in the Third Crusade promptly. One such figure is the German Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who led the third portion of the army through a land route in Turkey. Unfortunately, almost a year after Richard set foot in the Holy Land, Barbarossa drowned in the Salif River. Accounts of his death vary, with some suggesting that he was thrown from his horse, while others propose a heart attack during a river bath. Regardless, all accounts agree on his drowning. This unfortunate event significantly diminished the expected force, as one-third of the troops mostly German abandoned the army, and another third succumbed to disease upon reaching the Middle East. Only the final third made it to the battlefields of the Third Crusade, falling far short of the anticipated numbers that Richard and Philip had planned for. With Barbarossa down and out, we can shift our focus to Philip, the French king. We'll soon discuss his role in the unfolding events. But before we do that, let's explore the origins of the conflict. The initial capture of Jerusalem, a holy city for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, occurred somewhat accidentally. Pope Urban II called for the crusade at the behest of the Patriarch of the Byzantine Empire, who felt threatened by advancing Muslim forces. Originally intended to address the immediate threat, the Crusaders ended up conquering Jerusalem on July 15, 1099, just over four years after the war had been declared. The war's conclusion is contentious among historians, with a significant event being the sacking of Jerusalem, 
culminating in a mass slaughter of all men, women, and children in the city. For three days, Christian knights wielded their swords, resulting in a massacre that left Christian and Muslim communities haunted. The gruesome tales of crusaders wading through knee-high blood in mosques filled with bodies became legendary, passing down through generations to reach the ears of a young Richard and Salah al-Din. The Second Crusade, initiated in 1147, marked a significant chapter in history, involving King Philip's father, Louis, and his then-wife, Eleanor, who would later become Richard's mother. During this conflict, Salah al-Din, then only nine years old, witnessed the beginning of a series of events that would eventually propel him to power. The primary objective of the Second Crusade was to safeguard the Christian-founded crusader states from falling one by one, akin to a game of dominoes. Despite winning battles by the Crusades and Christians found themselves in a precarious situation. While retaining control of the Crusader states, mutual distrust characterized their relationships from this point forward. This environment post-Second Crusade created an opportunity for a skilled military commander to exploit and Salah al-Din proved more than capable for the task. As a devout Kurdish Sunni warrior, he initially played a behind-the-scenes role in Egypt, assisting his uncle in placing a teenager on the throne as vizier to curb the influence of the nation's Shiite population. However, Salah al-Din soon realized that his impact was limited in the shadows, prompting him to seize control of Egypt, ensuring Sunni dominance. Shortly after this power move, Salah al-Din faced a challenge from his former mentor, Nur ad-Din, who summoned a force to invade Salah al-Din's Egypt. In a twist of fate, Allah seemingly intervened by striking down Nur ad-Din. Salah al-Din seized upon the opportunity, invading Syria, the intended location of the Second Caliphate of the Middle East. While the Second Crusade had instilled confidence in the Arab world regarding their ability to repel Christians, it was Salah al-Din's consolidation of the Muslim world that truly empowered them to do so. In 1182, Salah al-Din initiated his moves against the Crusader states, employing a patient and deliberate strategy. By 1187, he had gained control over the majority of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Recognizing the imminent loss of the city, the Christian King Guy led a desperate army out to confront the enemy. Salah al-Din, a master tactician, utilized the harsh elements to his advantage. Harassing the Christian forces throughout the hot days preceding the battle, he deliberately wore down their men. Salah al-Din only revealed his forces after the Crusaders, fatigued and thirsty from marching through the desert heat without water, were at their weakest. His men set the grasslands on fire, blowing hot smoke at the exhausted and demoralized Crusaders. The ensuing Battle of Hattin became a one-sided and bloody affair. King Guy was spared, but forbidden to return to Jerusalem. Many knights and nobles were also spared and later ransomed. However, as a gesture of respect for their formidable fighting abilities, 
the Templar knights and hospitallers were all executed. With organized resistance eliminated, Salah al-Din systematically conquered the cities surrounding Jerusalem. His arrival at the capital in October marked the beginning of the Siege of Jerusalem, a process that took longer than necessary. Salah al-Din, recognizing the plight of the leaderless citizens, offered generous terms. Initially, he proposed allowing them to take their possessions and leave under military escort an offer that was rejected. Subsequently, he offered them the option to stay, with the condition that if an opposing army arrived within six months, they would be expelled from the city. This proposal, too, was rejected. It was at this point that Salah al-Din decided it was time for payback, echoing the Christian sacking of Jerusalem that occurred in 1099, where crusaders were said to have waded through knee-high blood in mosques searching for more victims. The rigid honor code of Salah al-Din got in the way of a quick and efficient slaughter, though. Balian of Ibelin, a French participant in the Battle of Hattin, sought permission from Salah al-Din to enter Jerusalem to rescue his family before the expected slaughter. Salah al-Din granted this request on a condition that Balian stay no longer than 24 hours. However, moved by the pleas of Jerusalem's citizens, Balian returned to Salah al-Din at the designated time, but requested permission to stay and organize the city's defense against him. Balian argued that his oath to God to protect innocence took precedence over his prior oath to Salah al-Din. After consulting with religious scholars, Salah al-Din accepted Balian's reasoning, allowing him to organize the city's defenses. Despite Balian's strategic leadership, it became evident after the first day of fighting that the Christians had little chance of victory. Balian attempted to sue for peace, but Salah al-Din recalling the brutality of the Christian conquest of Jerusalem in 1099, initially rejected the plea. However, Balian countered with a threat to destroy everything within the city, killing all prisoners if they were faced with inevitable defeat. Struck by the tone of Balian's speech, Salah al-Din, after consulting his advisors, opted for a compromise to avoid the massacre promised by the Christians. On October 2nd, Salah al-Din triumphantly entered Jerusalem, keeping his word to not kill any Christians. Ransoms for nobles were kept low, and the city was spared from plunder. Those who did not qualify for a ransom, however, were enslaved. Supply and demand took over, and eventually it was said that in Damascus, a slave could be bought for one sandal. Salah al-Din eventually began releasing families freely, declaring that Christians everywhere will remember the kindness that we have done for them. He couldn't have been more wrong. Despite Salah al-Din's efforts to show kindness, many of the released prisoners joined the crusader defenders in the nearby city of Tyre. In contrast, 
The Jews who remained in Jerusalem hailed Salah al-Din as a second coming of Cyrus the Great, honoring him for his tolerance. Salah al-Din had successfully ended nearly 100 years of Christian occupation of Jerusalem, but now he faced the challenge of holding the city against the inevitable Christian onslaught. That anticipated Christian assault gained momentum with the arrival of Richard in Acre. This marked the moment to set aside the second of the three crusader kings, King Philip of France, who had arrived a month and a half before Richard. The early arrival by Philip was mainly due to the Lionheart's conquest of Cyprus. The ongoing discord between the two friends, which began in Sicily, resumed immediately upon their forces reconnecting. Acre, the chief port of Palestine, held immense strategic importance as the traditional arrival point for Christians on pilgrimage from Europe. Securing the city was tactically crucial, allowing for reinforcements and supplies to arrive by sea. A marvel in itself, Acre featured a triangular shield-like design with two sides facing the sea and the remaining side fortified with a double wall, ditches, and numerous overlapping towers, offering archers a vantage point to rain down arrows on attackers. The largest tower guarding against sea invasion was named after Beelzebub, the demonic lord of the flies and was built on a site believed to have been a place of ancient human sacrifice, hence the supposed prevalence of legions of flies that protected the city. When Richard arrived in Acre, he found a city under a prolonged siege within another siege. Muslims controlled Acre, with King Guy and his Christian forces stationed on a sandy hill a mile away and Salah al-Din bringing a second Muslim army to a hill a mile further, effectively encircling the Christian forces that were already encircling Muslim-held Acre. As both sieges endured their second winter, the suffering became palpable. Christians resorted to slaughtering war horses for sustenance, and even turned to consuming grass. Salah al-Din, recognizing the dire situation, dispatched soldiers as swimmers, laden with money to implore the city's defenders not to yield to the enemy, despite the citizens slowly succumbing to starvation within the city. Philip's arrival to this desperate scene had been marked by significant fanfare. The French monarch appeared as the image of a noble savior, disembarking with six ships loaded with ready-to-use war horses. Philip, adorned with a magnificent, rare white falcon on his arm, positively oozed the image of a conquering lord and hero. King Philip's moment for glory had finally arrived. Philip contributed siege engines and forces to the ongoing efforts against Beelzebub's tower, which guarded the sea. Tunnels were dug beneath the tower in an attempt to sap its walls. While these efforts would eventually bear fruit, they did little to immediately turn the tide of the siege. Ironically, Philip's falcon abandoned the Christian cause shortly after arrival, finding a new perch on Acre's walls. 
In a curious turn, Philip's first communication with the Muslims in the cities was not a demand for their surrender, but an offer of 1,000 gold pieces for the safe return of his bird. Philip also entered the widening political struggle over the rightful king of the currently lost kingdom of Jerusalem. While King Guy claimed to retain the throne, Philip threw his support behind Conrad de Montferrat as the rightful heir. Guy's tenuous connection to the throne, which he had lost to Salah al-Din, relied on the bloodline of his deceased wife. In contrast, Conrad, seizing the opportunity, had married Guy's wife's still-living sister, asserting a stronger bloodline connection than the widowed Guy. Meanwhile, Philip's efforts to weaken the city walls proved more successful than his attempts to retrieve his falcon. The crusaders breached the walls twice, only to be repelled by the city's defenders. However, a week before Richard's arrival, the Count of Flanders, who controlled a strategic region between France and Belgium, was killed without an heir. Philip, harboring long-standing ambitions to annex Flanders to France, began to see more value in his kingdom fighting for Flanders than Jerusalem. Richard's arrival on June 8th, marked by the entrance of his 25 warships, sparked jubilation among the Christians. They gathered in Philip's royal tent for a quick briefing, during which Richard shared the harrowing tale of his adventures to rescue his new bride on Cyprus. Rather than congratulating his friend on his heroic deeds, Philip demanded half of the island due to their 50-50 loot agreement. This was despite the fact that the French had been involved even less on Cyprus than they had during the Sicilian Rampage. Richard cleverly deflected by agreeing to the Cyprus split, but insisted on an equal share of the recently available Flanders. Richard exploited Philip's Achilles heel, his obsession with money. Philip was cheap. After finding out that Philip only paid his soldiers three gold per week, Richard ensured that everyone in the camp heard that he pays four gold. This financial revelation subtly undermined Philip's authority, earning Richard a favorable reputation among the troops. Against the wishes of his former close friend, Richard immediately assumed command of the Siege of Acre. He swiftly directed his efforts against the Land Gate, reconstructing his wooden fort from Sicily into a tall tower, which kept its name of Montegraffon. This tower, armed with arrows, proved more effective than the smaller ones ringing the city. Additionally, Richard utilized granite boulders that he had taken from Sicily, which caused more damage than the locally sourced limestone being used by Philip. Salah al-Din, perhaps sensing the tide turning, offered a gift of sweet pears, plums, and fruits as a gesture of willingness to negotiate. However, the talks proved fruitless, with both sides seemingly anticipating reinforcements. Richard appeared content to initially wait 
weakened and losing his golden red hair due to a bout of scurvy, made him unfit to lead wartime charges. Christian reinforcements, however, were the first to arrive on July 2nd, following the successful destruction of Beelzebub's tower by Philip's sappers. With an opening finally revealed to them, the Christians surged forward, and Richard, still ill, wasn't willing to remain sidelined. Thus, he sat atop a royal litter armed with a crossbow, actively engaged in the battle. He motivated his men to rush forward heedlessly by offering a week's wages to anyone who brought him a piece of the city's walls. The fate of the city became increasingly evident to all observers. Negotiations began with Philip eager to come to a peace agreement, while Richard remained stubborn in his demands. Victory for him was always best served on the side of a soldier's sword rather than a negotiator's pen. During the diplomatic talk, Salah al-Din furiously tried to break the Crusaders' outer lines to reach the city in order to change the outcome. Eventually, he determined that the city was doomed and began destroying the surrounding villages to prevent the Crusaders from utilizing them in the future. Acre officially surrendered to Richard on July 12, 1191. The city's residents bought their lives by promising to fulfill the following terms. 500 Christian prisoners would be returned. The true cross would also be returned. 200,000 gold pieces would be handed over. 2,000 Muslim soldiers would become prisoners. And the city's 100 richest individuals would become hostages. Richard had arrived at a multi-year siege that had in turn become besieged. Within a month of his arrival, he had gained control of the city, and his legend in the Middle East had begun to grow. The Christians quickly worked to rebuild the city's defenses, took down their own wooden fortress-slash-tower, and packed it away in its travel kit. Richard wrote home that they should expect him back by Lent. Salah al-Din was honor-bound to fulfill the promises that Acre's defenders had accepted as the terms of surrender, despite not being consulted in the negotiations. He had to come up with additional prisoners to send, choose which Christian prisoners to include, find the 200,000 gold pieces, as well as summon the true cross, which had been taken in the Battle of Hattin. Saladin struggled to meet these demands and suggested paying in monthly installments. Richard, however, was not moved and demanded swift payment. He eventually gave an ultimatum. Failure to fulfill the deal would result in the death of all Muslim prisoners in Richard's possession. The Muslims thought that Richard was bluffing, but he wasn't. A few days after the deadline passed, Richard marched approximately 2,700 Muslim soldiers outside the walls of Acre and proceeded to have them executed one by one, all within sight of Salah al-Din's army. This unimaginable violation of the code of chivalry struck at the core of Salah al-Din, who, when he had the power, had mostly released or ransomed Christian prisoners in his possession. 
He truthfully had believed that Christians everywhere will remember the kindness that we have done for them. This act of cold-blooded violence cemented the concept of jihad, or holy war, in defense of the faith, and rallied Muslims throughout the Arab world to Salah al-Din's cause. For Richard, the executions were just another example of his pragmatic side. Richard had instantly jumped at the chance to restore the Holy Land and go on a crusade, but there's little in this story of the religious side of the Lionheart. For Richard, this was all about the glorification of warfare, and managing 2,700 prisoners while marching through the desert, all the while facing an enemy who was renowned for his harrying tactics, was nearly impossible. Freeing the prisoners and having them rejoin the enemy, or leaving behind enough soldiers to continually guard them decreased his odds of victory. Removing them from the chessboard and using them to send a message was the sensible move in Richard's mind. The mess created by Richard's decision was not going to be cleaned up by King Philip. Claiming that he had fulfilled his crusader vow by retaking Acre, he returned home to pursue war in Flanders instead. Leopold V would also abandon Jerusalem. He was the Duke of Austria and in command of the remaining German crusaders. The departure of these leaders was a bigger problem for Richard than just for their skill or their men-at-arms. For once they returned back to their respective homes, these two men would jeopardize the interests and integrity of Richard's Angevin Empire. Their departure placed an invisible clock hanging over Richard's head. He would have to end the crusade in a timely manner, or risk arriving home to chaos that was sowed by his enemies. And he would have to do it utterly alone. Rather than go through every painstaking detail regarding the Third Crusade, let's speed up a little bit, much like Richard did in August of 1191, in order to hit the major highlights, or lowlights, depending upon which side of the conflict resonates with you. From Acre, Richard's army traveled south to Caesarea. As the name suggests, it was an ancient Roman city famous for its palm trees, orange groves, and buffalo milk. The city was known for having a magnificent harbor made out of marble that had been built by King Herod. Richard always attempted to keep the sea guarding his back, just in case his men needed to make an emergency exit. His soldiers were forced to march fully armored during the day, and their movements were closely tracked by the enemy. Salah al-Din was patient, however, and was content to let sunstroke strike most of the blows against the crusaders. Expecting to find some respite, they arrived instead to a completely abandoned city, devoid of refuge and food. Upon leaving the abandoned city, the skirmishes grew in frequency and intensity. An Arab chronicler marveled at the discipline of the crusaders, as Salah al-Din continually attempted to cause them to break ranks so that they could be isolated from the main body and swallowed by either their forces or the desert. The chronicler described the soldiers as hedgehogs, seeing foot soldiers with ten arrows sticking in them, but continuing to proceed at their normal pace. 
There were two pitched battles during the march south, one at Arsuf and another at Jaffa. Both times, Richard's armies proved to be superior, as they were every time they clashed with Salah al-Din's forces. At this point, Richard sought a truce, but it was rejected. The overture was dismissed in part because Richard continually asked for total victory, which meant the return of all Christian land in the Middle East based upon the boundaries of the Second Crusade, as well as a full withdrawal of all Muslim forces. As long as these were his demand, there could be no peace with Richard. Additionally, the memory of the executions was still too fresh in Saladin's memory. The Sultan's patience was beyond thin. On September 6, 1191, he had two Christian negotiators beheaded, a rare loss of composure for the normally chivalric general. Arsuf became a breaking point for Salah al-Din's forces. It was home to one of the few forested lands in all of Palestine, offering Salah al-Din the opportunity to hide the size of his forces among the trees. At this point, Richard was forced to turn inward, away from the sea and towards Jerusalem. This was Salah al-Din's best chance to prevent the Lionheart from reaching the city gates. His plan was to lure his enemy into the woods and then light the entire forest ablaze. However, the fire never came. Richard's men stayed as far from the forest center as they could, even resting for a night in the midst of a wet marsh. The Battle of Arsuf occurred along a narrow one to two mile plateau. Sal al-Din outnumbered the crusaders by a two to one margin. When the assault came, Richard demanded that his men form a defensive shield wall and not break ranks. Chroniclers describe the crusader forces as a flock of sheep in the jaws of wolves, with nothing but the sky above and the enemy all around them. Hails of arrows filled that sky, and still Richard would not let his troops break ranks. Desperate to break their resolve, Sal al-Din himself entered the battlefield. The knights' hospitallers broke first, breaching their discipline with a charge. Richard wanted to exhaust the enemy, including their horses, so that they would be unable to retreat. However, when the hospitallers charged, Richard's infantrymen and cavalry charged with them. The timing was fortuitous, as the Muslims were so caught off guard by the frenzied assault that the trap of Arsuf turned into a rout. As was his way, Richard participated directly in the fighting. Chroniclers wrote, There the king, the fierce, the extraordinary king, cut down the Turks in every direction, and none could escape the force of his arm. For wherever he turned, brandishing his sword, he carved a wide path for himself. As he advanced and gave repeated strokes with his sword, cutting them down like a reaper with his sickle, the rest, warned by the sight of the dying, gave him more ample space. For the corpses of the dead Turks, which lay on the face of the earth, extended over half a mile. Richard restored discipline and prevented any pursuit of the enemy, allowing Salah al-Din to escape his own trap. It is conceivable that had Richard had the opportunity to choose the moment of the attack, as Richard was known for his knack for military precision, they could have eliminated Salal din's army. 
They would have to settle, however, for a military victory and a clear road to the kingdom of God. Defeated once again in battle by Richard, the path to Jerusalem was now clear. There would be no stopping Richard from reaching the holy city. The best that Salah al-Din could do was to make the path as difficult as possible. He achieved this by destroying most of the land between him and Lionheart, utilizing scorched earth tactics on land that he was trying to retain. Twice Richard's army reached Biet Nuba, a location only 12 miles from Jerusalem. Both times, Richard pulled his men back rather than besieging the city. This was an act that occurred due to Richard's overabundance of caution. Had Richard attacked, Muslim morale was so low that he likely would have won the city. However, Richard was deathly afraid of reinforcements coming to surround his army, cutting them off from the sea and supplies. If such a thing were to occur, he believed that they would suffer like the Christians did in the Battle of Haddon and the Siege of Acre. The decision not to attack when they were literally within sight of the city fractured the command structure and leadership of the crusade. Richard had come to be regarded as the singular voice of the army, but political missteps, including first supporting King Guy's return to the throne, only to later dismiss him and shift to Guy's political rival, Conrad de Montferrat, undercut his voice. The assassination of Montferrat a few days after Richard switched his endorsement further diminished Richard's credibility, as it was openly discussed whether he had been behind the assassination. Many of the crusaders, the everyman of this story, believed that they were doing God's work, and in the same way that the peasants and children of other crusaders believed that God would protect them, spoiler alert, he didn't, they believed that they were destined to take the city. Richard, however, could not get out of the way of his own pragmatic thoughts. While it may be odd for a man whose historical legacy is etched in military charges, Professor John Hostler of Morgan State University writes that it was Richard's restraint that set him apart from other historical military leaders. With the end literally in sight, Richard was able to rein in his love of adventure with patience, self-restraint, self-sacrificing generosity, and curiously, a real disinterestedness. He was somehow able to control his impulses that sought individual glory in order to wage a more effective military campaign. Syracuse professor Michael Martowski does not see restraint in this decision. He sees a failure of intelligence, pointing out that every single time Richard put the Crusaders into action, whether siege, march, skirmish, or open battle, the Muslims lost or retreated. His unwillingness to roll the dice in this moment, therefore, was ultimately his undoing. They left sight of the holy city to winter in the nearby fortified city of Ascalon. Richard's men lost both momentum and morale. A month after Richard's second feint towards the city, Salah al-Din made a bold decision. Watching Richard's army dither, he suddenly attacked Jaffa. This reawakened the lion that had wintered dormant in Richard's heart. 
With only 2,000 men, Richard rushed by sea to Jaffa, where they arrived to see fires already spreading inside the city walls. It appeared that Richard was too late to save one of his earlier conquests. The enemy had taken the walls of the city and besieged Jaffa's Christian defenders in the central keep. Upon seeing the enemy's flags flying from the barricades, Richard planned to turn his fleet around to consult with his generals for the best course of action. But at that moment of despair, a lone defender jumped from the wall and swam towards Richard's fleet. Informing the king that the defenders still held the central keep, Richard literally leaped into the sea, still in his boat shoes no less. There he led a charge into the city. With just 54 knights, a few hundred infantrymen, and 2,000 crossbowmen, the attack panicked the Muslims, who now had enemies in front and behind them. They also incorrectly assumed that this was only the advance guard of a significantly larger force that was coming. They couldn't imagine that the English king would be so reckless with his life without the promise of substantial backup. The Battle of Jaffa was another daring assault performed by the Lionheart. It was also another rout of Salah al-Din's forces. The Sultan wasn't able to regroup them until after they had fled five miles inward. Editors Michael Riley and Jamie Byram for the Inquiring History series explained the importance of Jaffa in this way. The surprise of his attack gave the Crusaders an improbable and dramatic victory. Richard's forces may have been unable to take Jerusalem, but his victory at Jaffa demonstrated his skill and valor as a military leader. It also showed that Salah al-Din was incapable of driving the Crusaders out of southern Palestine. Negotiation was now the only option. Following his victory at Jaffa, Richard's energy was sapped, and he fell dangerously ill. He was increasingly worried that his territories in France were in danger from the conspiracy between his brother John and Philip. The time had come to sign a truce with Salah al-Din. That truce would become known as the Treaty of Jaffa, and it was signed on September 2, 1192. For the first time, Richard dropped his demands for total victory, instead opting for a three-year-long ceasefire. The terms were simple. The Christians would have to destroy their fortress city of Ascalon, a thorn in Salah al-Din's side. But they could continue to hold on to Jaffa and the surrounding seacoast, providing them a landing spot for when hostilities inevitably resumed. Trade could begin again, and Christian pilgrims would be allowed to return to Jerusalem under a flag of peace. There was one exception to this last part that allowed all Christians to enter the holy city, as Richard himself was forbidden from entering it to visit the holy sites. The two military leaders signed the document separately, and they never met in person, as Salah al-Din felt it was inappropriate to meet while in the midst of hostilities. One month and a week later, Richard was aboard a ship abandoning the crusade with a personal vow to return to finish the job. It was a vow that he would be unable to keep. His brother John, his former friend Philip, and his former ally in war, Leopold, had all moved against him. He was sailing away from one war and into another. 
The war that he was headed towards, however, would have to be fought in the political arena, which was the only arena where Richard was ever at a disadvantage. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.